Good morning. Um, last week we finished chapter one of the book of James. Um, now some people believe that the book of James is in direct conflict with the teaching of grace and mercy and salvation for that matter, which we know is not accurate. Um, what James is saying is something we've talked about the last two weeks in this class and what I believe that our church does an excellent job of teaching and preaching, which stands against any refute, really. And that is, if Jesus Christ has truly justified your spirit and you have begun to be sanctified, it ought to change you. And today he's going to talk about that again. Um, James says, and not only James, uh, that if you say that you have encountered Jesus Christ and it hasn't done anything to change you, if there's no fruit of that, then that's a problem. So, we're looking in James chapter 2 today. Um, it's on the screen right here for any of you watching at home. If you're listening, I'm reading out of the uh, New King James Version. Pull it up here. We'll go right into verse 1 and not waste any time. Make sure. Okay. Starts out by saying, verse 1, My brethren. Now again, I want to drive this point home um, so it'll stick in everyone's mind so that we don't forget it. My brethren. Okay. Who have we said that James is talking to here? James is talking to the believers, right? Those that have been scattered due to the persecution. And the significance of him calling them, those who he's writing to, brethren, is an example of his humility, um, right? Him thinking, not thinking less of himself, but lowering himself, um, to positionally to the same place that we are, which is a sinner in need of grace. Okay, then he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Let's stop right there for a second. So, um, you know what James is saying here? The message, this message specifically, is for everyone. Um, James is telling us that we are not the ones who dictate who is permitted to hear this message or not. Um, Now, that seems kind of strange. You know, why would he be telling us that? Well, to me, it seems kind of like a no-brainer because, again, think about who he's writing to. Well, clearly there was um, someone or a group of people, this group of people, who were withholding this message, who were showing partiality, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have addressed it. Um, James obviously thought that it was important enough for them to hear it. And if you think about that long enough, we tend to do the same thing. Um, And what I mean by that is maybe not to the same degree, but we are just as guilty. So we all know the people that 
are so unbearable that we couldn't imagine ourselves witnessing to them because we can't even stand to be around them. You know, those are the ones that we think, if we're being honest, you know, well, God will send someone to witness to them because it sure isn't me, you know. Um, And we all tend to have these personal favoritisms, these uh, showing partiality. But the message of the cross has none. James is saying pretty blatantly here that if you show partiality, that you're in conflict with Jesus. Now, that doesn't belong with anyone who truly is um, in an intimate relationship with the Lord of glory that he mentions here, right? Our Lord Jesus, the Christ. That's one thing that um, that we tend to forget, that Christ being his title It's not his last name. Um, So anyone that has an intimate relationship with Christ can't show partiality. And if if they do, then there is conflict there. Um, Adrian Rogers said, If you want to know who a person really is, watch how they treat people who can't do anything for them. You know, it's easy to be kind towards those... um, who can benefit us, you know, who we can get something from. Uh, It's easy to love people who show us love, right? But how are you treating those people who don't love you or who don't like you or who think you're utterly unbearable? You know, do you treat people differently based on where they are positionally in regards to to how the world esteems them. You know, um, I've mentioned this a few times and I'm sure I'll mention it again. You hear about in the um, food service industry, the people that dread working Sunday afternoon shift because they said that Christians, maybe not all of them, but definitely uh, uh, quite a few, are, are some of their least favorite customers because they're the most obnoxious, rude, and least generous people on the planet. Um, you know, are we being a good representative of who we say that we belong to? Because Jesus says that if you want to know where he is at, he is in the least of these. Right? Now, I'm not saying that if you work in the food service industry that you're somewhere lower than myself or anyone else for that matter. But as far as the, how the world esteems people, they definitely esteem, you know, a aerospace engineer in higher regard. They hold them in a higher regard than they do like a janitor. Um, but Jesus clearly plainly tells us several times that we are to treat the least of these as we would him. So just as a reminder, a lot of us who think we're a big deal on earth are going to find that we're not a big deal in heaven at all. All right, let's look over. We're going to read through verses two through four. It says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, 
and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is what I love about the book of James and about James himself, right? He leaves nothing up for debate. This is why I said last week he would, or I'm sorry, the first week um, going through this study, that he would be a great speaker for men. Um, You know, if, if he was speaking to men, what would they do, right? If he said this, uh, men would be going, and I'm speaking for myself here. Well, what do you mean exactly, right? Tell me exactly what you mean. Or they might say, uh, well, he's certainly not talking to me. You know, I wouldn't do that. Um, and just like the Last Supper, you remember, if, if you think back, um, when Jesus Christ said that, told them that someone was going to betray him, they said, surely you don't mean me. Right now, I'm sure when Jesus said that one of you will betray me, everybody started looking around the room, and it says that that Peter turned to John and asked, "Who's he talking about?" Right? Oh, hey, hey, who, which one of which which one of us is, is going to do it? You know, instead of saying, "Is it me?" and and there are some passages uh, and in some books it actually does say that, but I think the uh, intent there was like, "Surely not me," right? In the same sense. Um, James is driving the point home like like last week that we talked about that whoever comes in here whoever comes in the church whoever comes um, in this study under the teachings um, but specifically our church whoever comes in here we are all equal at the foot of the cross right we don't make a fuss about the guy who's dressed in his Sunday best. And we don't treat the guy in a t-shirt and jeans like he's there to serve me. When you come into the church and you come under the authority of Jesus Christ, everybody is equal in the sense that everyone is undeserving. You know, anything that you bring to Jesus, anything that you bring to him that you think is of value is considered filthy rags, right? So any any good deed that you do, any talent or ability or fill in the blank, you know, it's in re, in regards to how Christ sees it, it's it's worthless without him. There's nothing you bring that he needs or that he um can't do himself. You know, the guy finally dressed, you know, dressed in, in fine clothes is what I mean. He may think that he is in need of less redemption than the guy in ready clothes. And what I mean by that is he might think that, like, if I'm the guy dressed nice and I see a guy wearing, you know, T-shirt with holes in it and jeans coming in with dirty tennis shoes or whatever, I might be led to believe, well, this guy's definitely in need of redemption more than me. But Jesus actually says that those of you who have a lot are actually going to have a more difficult time submitting to my authority, admitting that you need me because you already think that you have it all. You know, this person in the shabby clothes has known for a long time that they needed me, probably well before you did. 
And in the kingdom of heaven, it's what you do to the least of these that you've done for me. You know, now I'm going to take it a step further and say that some of you were raised that on Sunday you presented God with the best you had to offer as far as your attire. Okay, and this is the reason why I'm talking about your clothing is because that's what James is talking about here specifically, right? Um, There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way you were brought up. There's nothing wrong with dressing nice. I I think that you should um, if, if you are able. But if that's what you think you should do, then you should do it. But as soon as you criticize someone else in the house of God based on their attire, you are now projecting your preferences on other people. And that's very dangerous because it can lead to sin or it can lead to legalism. Right? The, uh, this person isn't as holy as me because they're not as presentable. If you think about it that way, it sounds an awful lot like some denominations that require a certain dress code as evidence of salvation. That's a lie. There's nothing in Scripture that says that you have to be dressed a certain way to be saved. But, um, sadly enough, that is taught uh, pretty prevalently today. You see, James is saying that God isn't all that concerned about your attire in his house, but he is saying, what is your spirit when you come in here? You know, are you bringing me a submissive, repentant, humble, poor in spirit attitude when you worship me, or are you trying to bring attention to yourself? You know, when Jesus says that he wants your best, he means spiritually, right, that he wants your best. Let me give you an example. When I was over in Uganda, um, those people had some of the filthiest, rattiest looking clothing that Americans wouldn't be caught dead wearing, right? In, in regards to how we view it, okay? And in the Pentecostal church, uh, at least in the, the few that I know of, they would be labeled as unsaved because of how they're dressed. You know, most of them didn't have shoes. Their clothes were filthy. Uh, they're full of holes. Uh, but that was their best, Okay, we need to understand that, that that was their best. You see, outwardly, someone might think that they were degenerate if they walked into an American church um, dressed like that. But I can guarantee you that those people were more holy, more righteous, right? They were um, and understood the mercy of God and the grace of God and his love they understood all that more than any of us probably ever will. So how dare I look condescendingly at those people or anyone else really based on their attire? You know what that shows? It shows that the problem isn't with them, but with me. That I still have areas of my heart that need to be transformed by the risen Christ. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. What I'm not saying, and what James isn't saying here, is that just because someone is poor, 
that they are somehow closer to Jesus. That is that is not what I'm saying. No. What what he is saying is that just because someone is dressed poor, don't assume that they are poor in spirit. But we need to be careful because we've what we've done in America is we've now flipped it. Right? Look over in the modern church. Modern churches tend to think, well, he thinks he has to wear a suit and tie to be as close to Jesus as I am. There's no distinction between the guy in jeans worshiping with words on a screen and the guy wearing a suit holding a hymnal. There's no distinction. It's about attitude, not attire. Again, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Okay, let's, um, let's look over in verses 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, There it is again, right? Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? He's driving home the point that he just made and he isn't leaving anyone with an excuse. Remember me telling you how how men tend to think, well, that's not me. Now here, James is telling them, you do this. This is you. He's saying what's interesting is that I'm watching you flock to people who look just like those who are dragging you into court, who are beating you and persecuting and prosecuting the church. You know, I thought you would have realized that it's this pious, um, it's the pious and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are coming after us. Those that blaspheme the name of Jesus. You know, when did we decide that we were going to flock to these people who look and act just like them? You know, you would have thought that we would have learned from that. James is saying we're starting to drift back towards what we were just freed from. Does that sound familiar? Think about Moses or the the Israelites. We're starting to try to go back to what we were just miraculously freed from. But not just the Israelites, but think about us, our sin, our personal life, right? We tend to try, our nature is to drift back to sin, to the very sins that Christ came to eradicate. Let's look at verse 8, verses 8 and 9. It says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So what's the greatest commandment? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, strength, and spirit, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, all of the commandments can be summed up into into this. You know, what's amazing is that when Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is teaching and going through the scriptures, and then somebody in the back 
you know, uh, raises their hand. You, you know, if any of you have are in a like a professional setting where you have to deal with meetings and things, you all know what I'm talking about. There's the one guy that always raises his hand and asks the ridiculous, unfair questions that drags the meeting out. Well, this guy says, um, you know, he raises his hand. He said, well, hey, can you just give it to us in a nutshell? And what Jesus could have done, you know, he could have said, where were you at the beginning of all things? Right? Like like Job. Um, who are you to ask me? Etc. But instead, what Jesus says, I'll tell you exactly what it is. If you really want to know what I'm saying in a nutshell, be fully committed to the Lord about everything. Okay? That's number one. Then love your neighbor like you do yourself. That's it. So James, as a good teacher, comes back to that and reminds us that the royal law of Scripture says to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we do that, we do well. But here you are showing partiality with my message. Not treating people the way that you would want to be treated. And you're going to be convicted by the very standard that you live by. You are now in conflict with the very Lord that you now say that you serve. You know, James is leaving them again without excuse. And he's rebuking them now through love. Okay, we we don't need to miss that. He's rebuking them through love for their sanctification and for the exaltation of Christ. He's saying, if we're going to exalt the name of Christ, if we're going first, if we're going to claim the name of Christ, if we're going to tie ourselves to him, and then we want to exalt his name, we want to raise it up above all things, then we got to do better than this. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. It says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, for anyone that knows me, you know that this is my bread and butter. (laughs) Um, You know that this is uh, probably some of the most used scripture by me. Um, so let, let me let me start off by giving you one of the best analogies that I've ever heard, okay? And it's that the Ten Commandments are like a pane of glass where someone has taken a marker and written all of the commandments on this pane, okay? Then when we look at it, we say to ourselves, what, you know, I'm good on that one, uh, and I'm on, I'm, you know, I'm good on that one. Eh, I need some work on that one, but then I'm good on the next one. Okay. And, but then Christ gives us a hammer and says, here, only break the commandments that you're guilty of. Right? You can't. If you break one, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. And understand, we talk about and the scriptures talk about the law, not the laws, plural. Verse 10 says the whole law. Okay? 
So you've either kept the whole law or you've broken the whole law. You know, if you guys were in class, um, David Coker mentioned uh, the last week, the rich young ruler. You know, we may think that we're doing pretty good when we compare ourselves to other people. Like the rich young ruler, you know, he said, well, I've done all these things. I've kept all these things. He said, okay, well, then you've done well. Uh, Now go and sell everything that you own and come back and follow me. And it says the man went away sad. And it's because Jesus knew his heart. It's not because he, well, he had kept the whole law. No, he said that he kept the whole law. Jesus showed him that he was a liar. Okay. Already he is now a transgressor. He showed him that his heart, his true God, was that of money. So not only has he blasphemed the name of God, but he's made an idol for himself. Okay, you see how these things work? It's not, okay, well, I break this one. No, no, no. If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. So when we compare ourselves, we don't need to compare ourselves to other people. That's easy. We need to compare ourselves to the true standard of perfection. We are transgressors, right? In the eyes of God, we are transgressors. Now, unfortunately... In so many churches today, we, including us, I don't, I don't think our church is guilty of it, but we're definitely susceptible, right? We have a tendency to take people to step four when we haven't ever really went over step one. Many Christians, if you can't see me, I'm putting that in quotes, okay? Many Christians today don't truly understand who they are in relation to Jesus Christ because we have preached a watered-down gospel that neglects to ever inform the person that they're a sinner. And we excuse it by saying it's all about grace. Remember me talking last week about hyper-grace abuse? You know, if, if, if you guys have been listening... Um, for any period of time, you know that that this is sort of where my, I don't want to say where my heart is, but this is sort of where my calling is, is bringing to light the truth to those who are self-deceived, right? Um, it's preaching to those people, not those that know they're lost, which I am more than happy to carry the message of the gospel to those people, but specifically, I've, I am led, I have an urgency to those who have deceived themselves into believing that they are a Christian, right? But people, look, we need to listen to this, okay? And I'm talking to myself here too. When we do this, when we preach a watered-down gospel, when we skip over who they are in relation to Jesus Christ, that we are transgressors, when we do that, we're creating false converts. There's no real repentance And because there's no true repentance, there's no real salvation because they don't even fully understand why they need saving. And when we do that, we are making them comfortable in their sin. Right? I mean, we see church, many churches today, they get so caught up in the number, in the quantity of, of decisions for Christ, and you can, I use that term loosely, 
that we don't stop and think about the quality of converts. Now, if a church is sees, you know, a hundred new converts a day, praise God, but I hope they're true, right? We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to get too far into it. But understand that when we preach a watered-down gospel and it does not include the law that we're creating false converts. And when you make somebody comfortable in their sin, it's a lot more difficult to convince them that they aren't saved, right? Because they had this experience one time and they were baptized and they went and talked to the pastor and but there's no fruit there. Now, the reason why I said said in the beginning that this is my bread and butter, um, what James is doing right here is is one of my favorite things. You know, James's exhortation in verses eight through eleven is evangelism one oh one. You know, for those of you that don't know, which most of you do, I'm a big Ray Comfort fan. Okay, and I'm not. It's not because I'm a fan of Ray Comfort. It's his method of evangelism is biblically accurate and effective, and and easy, uh, or I, I should say, simple. You see, when I'm when I'm witnessing to someone, when I get the opportunity, if I'm witnessing to a Muslim, I could learn. You know, I may have to learn the entire Quran and where the Quran and the scriptures disagree and why and or when I'm talking to an Orthodox Jew or when I'm talking to a you know someone of the Catholic faith or or Jehovah's Witness, you know, I feel like sometimes at least I did in the beginning, I felt bomb you know, overwhelmed, I guess that's the right word, overwhelmed with having to and you know, engulf myself in these other faiths and their beliefs to understand why they believe this way so that I could reach them. But this good person test negates the whole thing, right? Negates all of that, makes it so much easier. So what I do is I ask them a few simple questions, right? Because if you ask someone if they consider themselves to be a good person, I've never heard someone tell me no, never. And well, at least if it wasn't their first time hearing it. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, everyone thinks they are. If you would have asked Hitler, he would have said yes. If you would have asked um, Charles Manson, he would have said yes. They think they're pretty good people, right? So I say, okay, well, do you mind if I ask you a few questions to see if that's true? They said, sure. Uh, you know, they almost always will. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I take them through the commandments. Okay, how many lies have you ever told? Oh, I don't know. Okay, what do you call somebody that tells lies? A liar. So what does that make you? Well, I'm not a liar. Well, how many lies does it take to be a liar? Okay, so I, what does that make you? I guess I'm a liar. Okay, have you ever stolen anything? If they say, yeah. Okay, what does that make you? A thief? But what if they say no? Well, how can I believe you? You just told me you're a liar, right? Now, understand, this isn't Josh's method. This is what Ray Comfort has done that I've adopted. Works well. Um, and then you can just walk them through a few more. Walk them through... Um, you know, blasphemy, walk them through, uh, adultery, right? Uh, adultery, you, you say thing, you know, and murder. Have you ever committed adultery? No. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Well, yeah. 
Well, did you know that Jesus Christ says that if you lust for a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart already? No, I didn't. Okay, the same with murder. You ever murdered anybody? Nope, good on that one. Oh, really? Have you ever hated anyone? Well, and I haven't wished they were dead, which that, that does mean you hate them, number one. But hatred means to consider of no value, right? You ever said, I don't have any use for that person, or uh, he's worthless. In the eyes of God, he isn't. Because, but if you consider someone worthless or of no value, that's hatred. And Jesus Christ says that if you hate someone, you've committed murder in your heart already. And that's four of the Ten Commandments that they're already guilty of. So if you were to die today and you were judged based on those commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? They'd be guilty. Okay, so heaven or hell? Clearly hell. And then after they understand, now obviously that's a very Cliff Notes version, but only when they understand who they are in relation to Jesus Christ does Jesus Christ and his sacrifice start to make sense. If you tell someone that you want to give them chemotherapy and say, hey, I think you should take chemo. No, I don't think I will, (laughs) right? But what if you spent quite a bit of time, instead of trying to convince them to get the treatment that you showed them signs on their flesh that they have the disease of cancer, which is what sin is. It's the cancer of the soul, right? If I can show you that you have this disease of sin and I can show you that based on your fruit, then only then does the cure not only make sense, but is it appreciated That's what makes grace, grace. That's what we need saving from. Well, of course, people don't want to go to hell, but they really, they don't think, most of the time, they don't think they deserve hell. You have to show them through the scriptures, through the law. Let's look at verses 12 through 13. We'll wrap this up. Verse 12 says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now when I hear this, I immediately thought of this um, this lesson. I guess you call it a lesson. It was a, a speaking event, I think. Uh, maybe the, even the Gridiron Men's Conference years ago. Um but this gentleman got up and, and his whole message was by the grace of God. That's what he called it. Now, what he means is anytime that I see someone that has been crushed by their unrighteous decisions, my flesh thinks, you know, how disgusting. Glad I'm not that guy. This guy needs to pick himself up and, you know, get to work or whatever. That's what my flesh wants me to think. But the Holy Spirit has reminded me time and time again of this phrase, but by the grace of God, that would have been me. When I see someone homeless or an addict 
or someone living in adultery or fornication, it's always a good reminder of where I would be if it hadn't been for the infinite love and mercy and patience, you know, that, um, that Christ has shown me. Um, so with that in mind, you know, ask yourself the same question, you know, where would, where would you be if not for God's mercy? And when we see someone, um, in dire circumstances like this, if you look at them with pity, at least you're not looking at them with contempt. But even then, do something. Now, what I'm not saying is for every homeless person you see to give them money, okay? I don't think that is wise. But if you see someone or know someone in need, help them in whatever way you can. And Christ commands us to, right? That we are to help those if someone says, you know, I'm hungry, and I say, well, I'm going to pray for you, or, or uh, you know, that they need clothing, and you say, well, go away and come back tomorrow, and I'll give it to you then, you know, that tells you, shows you your heart that you really don't want to, you know. It's, it's like when the the least that people can do, you know, you'll see it on Facebook. Some, something will happen, and um, people say, I'm praying for you. How many of those people do you actually think are really praying for you? I would say it's the vast minority. Okay? But let me tell you this. When someone like Keith Bales tells me that he's praying for me, I know that he is. I know that he's faithful with his prayers. Um, it's because he knows that mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? Because, you know, the judgment here we're talking about is not, well, you shouldn't be judging people, that kind of thing uh, that the world tries to say when, we, when we're showing them their sin and it doesn't feel good and it stings the flesh. Well, you're being judgmental. No, is when we see someone in these circumstances or hear uh, what James is talking about with these, you know, they base someone's salvation on their how they're dressed or their circumstances so because of that they hold them with contempt in in a, in a way that they they don't want to be associated with them that's what it's talking about that mercy triumphs over judgment now let me tell you something if you know i did say that you shouldn't give money to every homeless person you see I'm not telling you not to give any to any of them because if you have a friend that circumstances occur to where they are in need, and I can think of one friend in particular that went through something um, pretty difficult, and it was entirely his fault, okay? Uh, if you're watching, you know exactly who you are. And and he calls me in the middle of the night, and he, and you know, and this isn't a testament to me, by the way. I just want to give you an example of, of the difference between judgment and mercy. Because when he calls me, and I know what's went on, you know, and it, I know it's his fault. Uh, and my first reaction is, I'm not giving him any money. 
I'm not going to go do this. You know, why is he even, you know, such an inconvenience. But in my mind, you know, he called me because he knows that I love him and that he has confidence that I can help him. Now, with that, he knew that there was some baggage tied to the assistance, right? To the to the mercy that I showed him, um, the small thing that really didn't inconvenience me at all. You know, I did sit down with him and explain to him, "Hey, listen, you know why this occurred, and you know how to keep from this. This is sin." And you have to purge this from your life now or this is going to continue. Um, if I would have listened to my flesh, that judgment, I, I could have just written them out. Hey, I'm busy. Sorry, I can't do it. Or I probably just wouldn't have answered the phone. But I knew that if I didn't, that I wouldn't have had the opportunity that I did to proclaim the gospel. Mercy triumphs over judgment just like Christ does for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? Um, Praise God that that is true. That his mercies triumph over the judgment that we deserve. Um, You know, praise God that we don't have to face that judgment, that he has shown us mercy and that he will show us mercy. All right, well, um, I think this is a good stopping point. We will try to conclude this chapter next week. If we don't, that's okay. Um, I appreciate all of you listening or watching at home. Um, I'm probably going to say this every week. We'd love to have you in class if you are able. Uh, We meet at Old Brazier's Chapel at 930. Um, You're more than welcome to come into class. Um, But if, if you can't for some reason, I do want to petition you to um, recommend this to other people recommend this this class to other people I'd love to um, to to see maybe it reach some people that maybe I wouldn't be able to otherwise which is kind of why I'm doing it um, so please recommend this to some people if you think it's worth recommending I guess I should add uh, show me a little mercy here um, but with that being said, um, I, again, I appreciate you for watching. I appreciate you for listening, for taking the time to hear me. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Um, and with that, I think uh, I think uh, we'll see you next week. Um, and uh, have a great week. All right. Thank you.